Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello and welcome to our interview with Margaret Stock of Cascadia Cross-Border Law. She is an expert on immigration law for military personnel and veterans. We will talk about the recent USCIS policy memorandum on parole in place for family members of military personnel. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Let's start with your background and your work. Well, I'm an, an attorney admitted in the state of Alaska and before the U.S. District Court for the District of Alaska and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, but I also have a military background. I served for 28 years in the U.S. Army Reserve Military Police Corps, and I'm now a member of their retired reserve. And I have worked closely on military-related immigration issues for a number of years now. Thank you. Can you give an initial brief description of the policy and whom it affects and what is the benefit? I'd love to do that. The policy affects people who are the spouses, children, and parents of active duty members of the U.S. Armed Forces. And I'll pause there for a minute and just mention that the U.S. Armed Forces include the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard along with their reserve components, which include the Army National Guard and the Air National Guard. They are reserve components of the Army and the Air Force, respectively. And, of course, this also includes, um, the U.S. Armed Forces also include the reserve components of the other services, so the Army Reserve, the Air Force Reserve, Marine Corps Reserve, the Coast Guard Reserve, and the Navy Reserve are also included. The memo affects the spouses, children, and parents of active duty members of the U.S. Armed Forces and also members of the selected reserve of the ready reserve. Now, that's a term that people are not that familiar with, but it basically includes people who are serving actively in the reserve components, including the National Guard. So the memo affects, for example, a spouse of somebody who goes to weekend drills or battle assemblies as a member of the National Guard and who's subject to being sent overseas if the National Guard unit is called up. The memo also affects the spouses, children, and parents of former members of the U.S. Armed Forces or former members of the Selected Reserve of the Ready Reserve. So that also includes people who are veterans, the spouses, children, and parents of people who are veterans. And what is the benefit? The benefit is that the, the policy memorandum says, on a case-by-case basis, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services may grant something called parole in place to these spouses, children, and parents. Now, what is parole in place? Well, it's basically a form of parole, immigration parole, that allows somebody to get a document showing that they have been paroled into the United States, even though they have not left the United States. So they're being paroled on a case-by-case basis as an exercise of discretion um, for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit. Uh, And they're given a document even though they're already physically present in the United States. And typically this is going to apply to people who are present in the United States without inspection or admission. Um, They call it parole in place because you're not going anywhere. You're not leaving the country in order to get the parole. Most immigration lawyers are familiar with advanced parole where somebody gets a document and they leave the country and they re-enter and they're paroled back in at the border when they're trying to re-enter. But in the case of these individuals, they will receive a parole document even though they haven't traveled at all. Um, And... Commonly in the past, this was used to benefit uh, individuals from Cuba, for example, who are otherwise not eligible to adjust under the Cuban Adjustment Act, so they would be paroled in place, which would then allow them to apply under the Cuban Adjustment Act for their green cards. 
The benefit is people are granted a document that says they're here with the permission of the government. They've been paroled in. And this allows them to then file for adjustment of status if they are the immediate relatives of a United States citizen. Hmm. Now, is there a presumption of the urgent humanitarian reason or the significant public benefit, or is that something that the applicant needs to prove? Well, the memo says that the decision to grant parole is discretionary and generally that it's parole in place is to be granted only sparingly. However, the memo says that the fact that the individual is a spouse, child, or parent of a member of the military, the selected reserve, or a veteran ordinarily weighs heavily in favor of parole in place. So they're basically saying that, you know, it, it's supposed to be granted only sparingly, but for this category of people, um, the fact that they have this relationship to somebody in the military or served in the military in the past will weigh heavily in favor of them being granted parole in place. So it's a little bit unclear, but it looks like if there's no adverse factors, such as a criminal conviction or other serious adverse factors, generally they would grant parole in place, and that's what the memo says. Um, now, they, the parole will be authorized in one-year increments. So the person initially will apply, will get it for one year, and then if they can't adjust their status within that year, presumably they will keep asking for it one year at a time and, you know, until such time as they can resolve their situation. And how does someone ask for it? Well, they've set up a specific policy, which is stated in the memo. In order to request this benefit, they submit an application directly to the director of the USCIS office with jurisdiction. So there's no lockbox involved at all. They go directly to the field office director in the jurisdiction where they live, the place of residence, and they present a completed form I-131, which is a form that typically is used for a travel document, and it's used for advanced parole. So lawyers will be familiar with this. They complete the I-131. They don't need a fee at all. They provide evidence of the family relationship, evidence that their family member is an active duty member of the U.S. Armed Forces or is in the selected reserve of the Red Reserve or is an individual who previously served in the U.S. Armed Forces. They provide two identical color passport-style photographs and then evidence of any additional favorable discretionary factors. Now, typically, I think most people would do this through an InfoPass appointment. So you just make an InfoPass appointment, you'd bring all your documents to the appointment, and you'd present them at the counter during your InfoPass appointment to the field office director. And whether, I'd like to know whether or how you would include proof of the favorable factors, how much one should document that. Well, I don't think there's any particular rule on this, but based on my experience with parole in place, it would be important to perhaps explain how your spouse, child, parent came to the United States, how long they've lived here. Uh, obviously, favorable factors would be that they've lived here a very long time. It would perhaps be unfavorable if they just came into the United States without inspection yesterday. Uh, that I don't think the agency would view that favorably, but if they've been in the United States for a very long time, you would want to point that out, perhaps pointing out conditions in the home country that would argue against them going home to seek a visa. If it's a parent, you might point out that if they've been in the country without permission for a long time, that if they depart, they'll be barred for 10 years and that there's no waiver available to them to come back. Uh, you might point out the nature of the military member's duties, whether they've been deployed, whether they've been injured in combat, whether they need the help of the parent, spouse, or child in order to perform their military duties or seek treatment at the Veterans Administration, um, those sorts of things. So you would try to basically give the agency a picture of 
the merits of the case and why the person should be granted this form of relief that's only typically granted sparingly. Would you have the person write out a statement or would you just describe this, in a, for example, in a cover letter with the packet? Well, I my practice has been to have the military member make a statement, and I have the military member describe their career in the military, how the spouse, parent, or child supports them through their career in the military. For example, if the spouse takes care of children while they're deployed, I point that out, or if the parent does that while they're deployed, I point that out. Uh, so basically, the military member asks for this from the government, saying, hey, I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm a lawful permanent resident, and please give me, give my spouse, my parent, my child this form of release for the following reasons, and I have them again, describe their military career and how military readiness or their ability to perform their duties or get benefits from the Veterans Administration, for example, might be affected by a lack of parole by their spouse, child, or parent. Hmm. And do you include a work permit application with the packet? Well, this is a decision people are going to want to make in conjunction with the client, um, Interestingly, as the memo points out, once you're granted parole in place, in many cases, in fact, the majority of cases, the person is then going to become eligible to file for adjustment of status. Now, if you look at the parole instructions, uh, employment and authorization document instructions on USCIS's website and the instructions for the I-765 or in the regulation HCFR 274A, you'll notice that you can apply for work authorization if you've been paroled into the United States. However, as with any work authorization application, the government can take up to three months to grant you permission to work. So if your client, upon being granted parole, is going to be eligible to file a one-step adjustment application, it might make more sense financially and procedurally simply to request the work permit along with the one-step application. As you probably know, as listeners probably know, there's a combined application fee for the I-485 that includes a work permit within the, the combination fee. And so you might save money, time, and as a practical matter, you know, get the work permit just as fast if you simply file for parole. Once you're granted parole, file the adjustment application rather than doing a separate work permit application. But certainly for people who are not ready to file for adjustment of status or perhaps don't, aren't going to qualify for adjustment of status until a future date, um, it might make sense to do a separate application for a work permit once you've been granted the parole. Thank you. What are the provisions around the usual disqualifiers, for example, crimes? Well, again, this is a discretionary remedy. So if the person in the eyes of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services doesn't warrant discretion, they are probably not going to grant the parole in place. And I would say just some obvious things that probably would cause the agency alarm. They wouldn't want to grant parole in place if the person's got a very serious criminal record. Um, they're a drug dealer, they've been convicted of an aggravated felony, um, they've been deported from the United States, tried to re-enter unlawfully, uh, got charged with a crime of re-entering unlawfully, and now they've snuck back in again. I mean, those are probably significant negative factors. Uh, repeat serious criminal behavior would probably be a disqualifier, I suspect. Hmm. Let's talk about admissibility. So you've addressed the effect of parole for someone who seeks to adjust status. What about the matter of unlawful presence? How is that implicated? And, and does someone who's granted parole in place, do they toll unlawful presence? Well, you're not unlawfully present if you've been granted parole in place. You're no longer unlawfully present. You have a document from the government that says 
you've been paroled in. You know, there's this legal fiction that you're not really here because you've been paroled, but you, you know, as a physical matter, you're here. So, but you're here with permission. You now have a document that the government says allows you to be in the country. So you no longer have unlawful presence. Now, there are going to be some complicated fact patterns coming up that might be implicated by the fact that somebody's had past unlawful presence. And I don't think at this point we're ready to tell how the agency's going to interpret such things as somebody who's subject to permanent bars and hasn't met the time limit to apply for reapplication and that sort of thing. But the typical person who entered without inspection and has had an unlawful period of unlawful presence up till now, um, there's no barrier to them adjusting status after being granted parole in place uh, because of that unlawful presence. The unlawful presence, if they have a relative who's an immediate relative who's a U.S. citizen and that immediate relative is applying for them, the unlawful presence is basically overlooked by the government. That's the law. As long as they have not departed the U.S. after having accrued a certain amount of unlawful presence and then triggered a bar that only kicks in after they depart. So the, the famous three-year and ten-year bars aren't implicated unless you've departed the U.S. Uh, people with unlawful presence who have not departed the U.S. can safely request parole and then apply for adjustment of status because those bars don't apply just because you have unlawful presence. They only apply if you have had unlawful presence and then you departed the U.S. And that's the whole, uh, the genius of this policy, if you will. They're letting people be paroled in place to avoid having them leave the country and trigger those bars, which would then require them to file complicated waiver applications, or they might not be eligible for a waiver. So particularly for parents, this is a, a really great development because they can adjust status now based on their son or daughter applying for them, assuming the son or daughter is 21 years old and a U.S. citizen, of course, uh, but they won't have to leave the country. They won't need a provisional waiver. They won't have to worry about unlawful presence at all, if, as long as they haven't departed the U.S. after having accrued unlawful presence. Mm. And for people who have departed and returned, your advice at this point would be to wait and see how this is going to be applied. Well, again, you're going to have they're going to have to sit down with an attorney, go through the facts of their case, make a judgment call. There's nothing in the policy that says they can't be granted parole, but if they're granted parole, they might not be able to adjust status because they might need some waiver that might not be available to them. So anybody who has a complicated fact pattern, just as with any any situation involving immigration law these days, you're going to want to sit down with a lawyer, talk about the facts of your case, figure out exactly what happened, when it happened, and determine whether it's safe to apply for parole in place or whether you want to seek some other remedy in the future. So could someone uh, who is granted parole in place travel outside the United States and return? Well, again, you, if you're granted parole in place, um, you have not been granted advanced parole. Uh, so if you file your combination one-step adjustment application and you request a travel document, you're granted a travel document, then certainly you could travel. But you, the parole in place doesn't necessarily give you travel permission to travel outside the United States. You're simply being paroled into the United States for in the public interest. Okay, so it's not a travel document that lets you travel, but you can separately get one of those by applying for it if you are eligible to apply for adjustment of status. Hmm. Now, if a person allows the parole to expire, what's the impact of that? Is it, you know, once you're paroled, you're always admitted for adjustment purposes, or do you have to be with, uh, you have to have a current parole in place status to file for adjustment? Well, it's not clear. Uh, the agency has not officially come out with a memo, of which I'm aware of, where they say you have to currently be in parole status. The statute says 
you have been admitted or paroled. Um, some lawyers have successfully adjusted people whose parole has expired. However, it would be prudent in case there's a new agency interpretation coming out for people to renew their parole once it's been granted. I don't, I don't think it's smart to let it expire. And since the memo says that they can renew it in one-year increments, there would be no reason not to reapply. There's no fee. So it makes sense to just keep it current until such time as you can adjust your status. And do you see any risks in applying? You know, what if someone is denied? Do you think they would be put into removal proceedings? Well, that's hard to say, and again, it's going to depend on the facts of the case, and it will depend on current Department of Homeland Security priorities for serving notices to appear on people. There's some people they might deny and then not take any action to attempt to deport them, and other people, depending on the facts of the case, they might take action. For example, if someone has serious criminal convictions, um, certainly it would be risky to apply for parole in place because it's granted on a case-by-case -case basis as a matter of discretion. If the agency decides to deny the parole in place, you have come forward, you've identified yourself, you've given them all the information, and if you have a serious criminal record, you're on the top priority list to be deported, so likely they would give your information to Immigration Customs Enforcement, which of course has a duty to deport people from the United States who have committed certain crimes, and the agency has made it a top priority to do that. So there's no guarantee that if you come forward and apply for parole in place and you have very bad criminal record that they're going to leave you alone. I, I doubt that would be the case. I think they would have a duty to, to attempt to try to deport you if you're on their list of uh, criminals who are supposed to be deported as a matter of priority by the federal government. Hmm. And likewise, what about people with previous removal orders? Well, again, if you have a previous removal order, you're going to want to consult with an attorney. Now, I have successfully adjusted people under parole in place who have previous removal orders. But typically what I do in those cases is I get a copy of the file, I figure out what happened, I attempt to file a joint motion to reopen the old removal case, and then have the government attorney agree to terminate the proceedings before the judge. We ask the judge to terminate and get the judge to sign a termination order. Um, if the proceedings are reopened and terminated, then there's no problem adjusting the person. And that's typically what I've done in the past. But again, this is going to require the person to sit down with their attorney go over all the facts of their case. The attorney's going to want to get a copy of the file and review it and see what's in the file, what kind of removal order it was. Is it an, an absentia order? Is it some other kind of order where there's some procedural defect and you might be able to reopen the old case? You know, what exactly has happened? Uh, and that's complex. And I, I can't give you a, a, an answer to everybody's case on the phone other than to say that um, it, it is, in fact, possible in some cases to reopen an old removal order and get the case reopened and then adjust the person with parole in place, and I've done that. Um, most recently, I did it with a case in Texas involving a woman who had gotten an in absentia deportation order uh, approximately seven or eight years ago, and the Office of Chief Counsel agreed to reopen the case on a joint motion, and the judge granted the joint motion to reopen, and then the proceedings were terminated so that she could seek adjustment before the service and there hasn't been a problem with the case. I mean, it's a, you know, because the order was reopened. Of course, if you have an outstanding removal order, then you're going to want to get very good legal advice before you attempt to apply for parole in place. Hmm. And are there any numbers out there? Do we have any idea how many people might be impacted by this policy? No, we don't have any numbers yet. We just know that this isn't a new... Uh, a new remedy, um, it's been going on since 2008. Michael Chertoff, while he was Secretary of Homeland Security, ordered 
publicly the first military parole in place for the wife of an army soldier. So we know that there are literally hundreds of cases involving military members who have spouses, parents, and children who are unauthorized, but we don't know how many are going to come forward under this new policy and apply. Uh, but people have been applying since 2008. I know I've had um, dozens of cases in my office, and I'm sure other lawyers who handle these kinds of cases have had plenty of cases too. So it's been a popular thing since 2008 for people in the military, the ones who know about it. And one of the great things about this policy is that now it's public and everybody knows about it and there's a national policy. And the policy clarifies a lot of things. In the past, the different field offices had different rules about who was eligible and who was not. And this new national policy does wonders clarifying who's eligible. And are there any public education efforts within the military or the Veterans Administration? I don't know of any public education efforts within the military or within the Veterans Administration. However, the military newspapers have started to publish articles warning people in the military about this new memo. So, there, for example, there was an article in Stars and Stripes, and there's been an article in uh, military, on military.com, which is a popular website that serves the military community. I suspect in future months there will start to be outreach efforts from USCIS to tell members of the military community about the memo. USCIS has a very robust liaison program with military bases, and I believe that they will be very um, forthcoming about the policy, and they will talk to people in the military and tell the local legal assistance offices about the policy through their outreach efforts. And I'm also sure that organizations like AILA and the National Lawyers Guild and so forth will do outreach into these communities to let them know. Right. Have you seen an uptick in your caseload, or are you going back through files to see who might have eligible family members? Uh, well, I, I'm seeing a very big uptick in lawyers calling me about <laughs> these cases. Um, you know, I've been handling them all along and um, handling them regularly, so I, I can't say I've you know, seen an uptick in my personal caseload for individual clients, but I'm getting a lot of calls from people that are curious whether they're eligible, they're curious whether somebody in their family is eligible. Interestingly, most of the callers are people who are, think the memo applies to people who are outside the United States, and that's not the case. This memo strictly deals with people who are inside the United States. It doesn't serve as a substitute for an I-130 for somebody in a foreign country, and there's been some mistaken information apparently out there that Somehow this is a substitute for the I-130 procedure, but it, it's not. If your relative is outside of the country, you still need to file an I-130, and this policy does not help you. Right. So now who needs to apply right away? Are we looking at, you know, children who are soon going to be sons and daughters or 17-year-olds who are soon going to start accruing unlawful presence? What are your, you know, concerns or priorities on that? Well, certainly if there's a member of the military who has an unmarried child under the age of 21 who is possibly going to age out of being an immediate relative and then end up in the one of the family preference categories, you would want to file for those people right away. You wouldn't want to take the risk that somebody's going to turn 21 and accrue a period of unlawful presence and not be eligible under the F1 category for some reason. Um, so certainly children who are out of status you would want to take care of right away. Spouses, there is probably less urgency, except that, of course, they need to be the immediate relative of a United States citizen. So if somebody is uh, in danger of passing away or something like that, you'd want to get something filed pretty quickly. Um, the other group that it's kind of interesting, I've gotten a few calls about, are parents of U.S. citizens who have not yet reached the age of 21. And that's a group that 
you're going to want to watch if you're an attorney who has somebody like this. Uh, a U.S. citizen in the military can't file for a parent unless the U.S. citizen is 21 years old. And that's the same rule that applies to everyone else. You have to be 21 years old to be a U.S. citizen who files for a parent. Now, there is a weird exception in the military, and that's for deceased U.S. citizens who are serving in the military. If you're a deceased U.S. citizen, 17 to 20, whose parent who has a parent um, who's not a U.S. citizen, a deceased U.S. citizen serving in the military who died on duty can file for a parent. Um, and that's a little bit of a strange and odd exception to the rules. If you're alive and you're 18, you can't file for your parents. If you're dead, you can, or your parents are technically filing. Mm. Uh, so that's something people are going to want to watch. I certainly don't expect uh, people to be taking advantage of the younger rule, obviously, because um, it's a tragic situation when somebody dies on active duty. But you should be aware of that. I know there's some confusion in the military, and some people in the military don't realize that the ability to file for your parents doesn't kick in if you're alive until you're 21. So I often get calls from 19-year-old Marines who want to file for their parents. With this new policy, it looks like your parents could probably file for parole in place, but they're not going to be able to file the adjustment application until the Marine or the soldier, sailor, or airman is 21 years old and can file an I-130 for the parent. So there's a little bit of gap there, and some parents might be reluctant to come forward and apply for parole in place until their son or daughter is 21, their U.S. citizen son or daughter is 21. Right. So what else could the administration do to make life easier for military personnel affected by immigration policy? Well, there's still some gaps out there. Uh, one of the things that's not addressed by this memo is what about military veterans themselves who are not American citizens or lawful permanent residents? The deported vets issue, this memo doesn't deal with deported vets at all. Uh, the administration has put out a memo from John Morton. They put it out a couple of years ago saying that they're supposed to exercise prosecutorial discretion with respect to such veterans but it's not clear that that's being done across the board, and certainly they're not being granted any benefits. Um, one of the things that doesn't hasn't happened that's still a gap is the veterans who've been wrongly deported to be allowed back into the United States in an expedited fashion, and they don't have a policy for that. Also, this memo doesn't address brothers and sisters, um, and that's because, of course, they're not immediate relatives of U.S. citizens, so they wouldn't have an, a way to adjust status based on parole in place. Um, and it doesn't cure the general problem of, for example, uh, DREAM Act people who want to join the military. Uh, the administration still has not put out a memo allowing those folks to join the United States military. Right. Anything to add today? No, I think I think we've covered it. I just hope everybody reads the memo carefully. Also, the memo purports to apply only to spouses, children, and parents of certain people who are serving in the military, previously served in the military. But there's important discussion in it about the meaning of the present without admission language in the, in the Immigration and Nationality Act. And I think every lawyer should read that, even if they don't have military clientele, because that part of the memo seems to apply to a broader range of people than just the family members and military personnel. So if you've ever had a client who's been paroled for any reason, you might want to read the, the section of the memo that talks about how to adjust somebody off parole. Um, and that language, again, is not limited just to people in the military. It's a general interpretation of the law by the agency. So it's critical for lawyers to, to read that and become familiar with that. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Margaret Stock, and thank you to Cascadia Cross-Border Law for allowing us this time with you as well. 
No problem. Thank you very much for inviting me. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to email me and I'll try to answer your questions. Okay. Thank you.